0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books and Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Yarima Bonilla and Dr. Marisol Lebron about their new edited anthology, Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm, published by Haymarket Books just this year, just this month actually, and in fact this interview is happening one day after the NYU Latinx pro- uh, project book launch and panel, and so I'm, I am so excited to be on the heels of that conversation. Um, and I will be sure to link the video to that panel in the description of the New Books Network. Before we get started, I'm going to introduce our guests in alphabetical order, alphabetical order by last name. Dr. Bonilla is a political anthropologist and professor at the City University of New York, who's currently focuses whose work currently focuses on the political, economic, and social aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, for which she is a uh, 2018-2020 Carnegie Fellow. Bonilla's first book, Non-Sovereign Futures, French-Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment, published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press, examines how contemporary activists in the French-Caribbean island of Guadeloupe imagine and contest the limits of post-colonial sovereignty. She has received many awards for her work across disciplines, including those from the National Science Foundation, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, and the W.E.B. Du Bois Bois Institute at Harvard University. Dr. Marisol Lebron is currently assistant professor in the Department of American Studies, American and Latina Latino Studies, excuse me, at the University of Texas at Austin. During the uh, 2019-2020 academic year, LeBron will be a faculty fellow at Harvard University's Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History. Her work focuses on spatial inequality, policing, violence, and protest. Her 2019 published book, Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico by the University of California Press, examines the growth and punitive governance in contemporary Puerto Rico. Both Yarimal and Marisol are leading voices on questions of the Caribbean and Latinx politics, both are also principal contributors to what is now known as the Puerto Rican Syllabus, along with their colleague, Sara Molinari, which is a list of collaboratively sourced resources for teaching and learning about the current economic crisis in Puerto Rico. And I will also plug that they both also have amazing and aspirational websites that I think everyone should check out. Um, so thank you all so much for both being on an um, on interview with us today, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you. I just wanted to add that with Puerto Rico syllabus, there's an additional collaborator with it, Isabel Gusardo from Rutgers University as well.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for adding that. Um, So just to get started, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourselves. Uh, What are your personal and academic backgrounds? Um, How you came to to study what you study? Um, Yeah, Uh, Marisol, would you like to go first?
1: yeah we were just actually pointing at each other over who was gonna go first over here so, um but yeah a little bit about my background um, I'm an Amer- I'm trained as an American studies scholar and trained in Latino studies as well Um I did my undergrad work at Oberlin uh, College and I worked with uh, Gina Perez there, who um, is an amazing anthropologist and uh, Latino studies scholar um, and really kind of um, got me super interested in thinking through these questions around empire and race and Puerto Rico in relation to American studies. So really thinking about Puerto Rico as a contemporary site in American studies. One of the problems with often how we conceptualize Puerto Rico in relation to American studies is that it's seen as this, um, object of the past, right? So it's always related to 1898 in this moment of kind of imperialist frenzy. And then, uh, it's as if Puerto Rico, uh, is no longer relevant to American studies. And so working with, um, Gina, I was, I became really interested in how we can think about an endurance of American empire in Puerto Rico. And I think that's something that also, uh, when I came to NYU to do my PhD in American studies, I was able to, to do and had a lot of support for in the program there and worked with Arlene Davila, uh, there, who I was really excited to have. Uh, the launch event with uh at the at the Latinx project last night, so that kind of question around empire um and the kind of enduring legacies of these imperial practices is something that informs um all of my work. It's something that uh comes through in my first book in policing Life and death, and something that really comes through in the book that uh Yadimar and I edited as well yeah so uh
2: as for me, I I was born in Puerto Rico. Uh, although my mom says I can decide if I'm uh, island Rican or Rican because I've lived <laughs> uh, equal amount of time of both. Um, and I went to school at the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, my major was in Caribbean studies. And at the time, I really wanted to be a journalist. Uh, and with no guidance from any professional or an or, uh, uh, expert, I decided that to be a journalist, I should not study communications, which is what you would have thought, but uh, Latin, I decided to instead do Caribbean studies and get mm-hmm. my master's degree in Latin American studies because I had this dream of being like a foreign correspondent and stationed in Nicaragua or something. Um, and I was uh, really interested in, whereas Marisol is trying to, was trying to think about Puerto Rico relationship to the United States, my interest was really thinking about it in relationship to Latin America and to the mm-hmm. Caribbean because coming from Puerto Rico, I felt like we were too obsessed with the United States. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, but then as I as I, as I went to get my master's at the University of New Mexico, where I began taking courses in anthropology, and I thought, well, this is like a foreign correspondent. <laughs> you just exactly. got to, you know, go and study uh, people and places that you're interested in. And so I decided to get my PhD in anthropology, and I went to the University of Chicago to work with Michelle Rolf Trio, the late Michelle Rolf Trio, who was, you know, and it remains one of the most important figures in Caribbean studies and undoubtedly within anthropology, but, you know, broadly speaking as well. So um, so I worked with him, and, and part of what he encouraged me to do was to move out beyond Puerto Rico to, mm-hmm. to try to think about the questions that I was interested in, in terms of imperialism, sovereignty, social movements, um, in a different context. So I, my first book is about the French Caribbean and about the relationship of the French overseas departments to the French metropole, um, and how has you know departmentalization, full annexation into the French nation, how has that solved or not solved the colonial relationship that you know people feel in in Guadeloupe? I I talk about social movements. I talk about labor unions, and I talk about how folks in the Caribbean, particularly in places like Guadeloupe and Puerto Rico, that are not independent nation states, how they imagine the questions of sovereignty and the challenges of sovereignty for post-colonial societies uh, in the Caribbean and beyond.
0: Wow, thank you. Thank you both so much. Uh, It's really fascinating to hear how you all think about um, Puerto Rico from different perspectives and have come to think about Puerto Rico from different perspectives. now, turning, turning to the book, I was wondering um, if you all can tell us a bit about the development of the anthology. How did it come together? Um, how did you two come to be its co-editors? Um, and maybe perhaps a little further down in the, in the conversation, how you all decided to organize the book in the sections that were presented, right? So you have openings, narrating the trauma, representing, representing the disaster, capitalizing on the crisis, and transforming Puerto Rico.
2: Yeah, so the book began uh, as a conference that I organized at Rutgers University. I was approached by uh, one of the uh, associate vice presidents there. They wanted to do something in the wake of Hurricane Maria for the one-year anniversary. And so I I remain very grateful to her because I think that I was still Um, you know, getting my bearings from everything that had happened, and and it might not have occurred to me to take this on. So um, she, and she was very generous in funding this conference, and part of what I wanted to do, given um, the the place and and the audience, was that I really wanted to bring voices from Puerto Rico to to speak on these issues, and to move beyond... um, just traditionally academic voices. So I sought out journalists, activists, artists. Um, we started the conference as, as we do the book with a play um, because I, you know, I felt like there were all these different entry points that were necessary for, for thinking about Maria and that there were ways in which the, the, the narrative tools of, of the social sciences or even of the humanities um, fell short um, so that was really something that was, you know, part of the initial conference, which was grouped uh, around panels with the themes um, that you mentioned. Although then um, at the conference, one of the participants said, this should be a book. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, I guess it should. So, again, I'm, I'm grateful to her for, for envisioning that. And that was Sandra Rodriguez Coto. And so I approached uh, I approached several presses, and some of them you know said that they, they weren't interested that they didn't think that anthologies sold well, that, that you know people wanted single authored books that that was easier to market. but you know, I really felt that this was an important conversation, an important contribution. Um, and so Haymarket Press uh, who had published Naomi Klein's book, uh, um, Battle for Paradise Battle, The Battle for Paradise. Um, they agreed and in conversation with them, they said, well, you know, we could get this out in one year, which is Uh. insane for (laughs) coming from the academic publishing world. Um, And so I said, well, I know just the person (laughs) to work (laughs) with me on this. And so I, Marisol and I had already been in conversation. I mean, we're in permanent conversation um, about our research and work together on Puerto Rico syllabus. And we had already talked about doing an edited volume, um, from, you know, related to Puerto Rico syllabus. And so I asked her if she would be willing to do this instead. And um and she stepped on. And, and so we had a crazy uh, couple of months uh, putting this all together.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, so I came in, I, I wasn't able to attend the Rutgers conference. And so I kind of came in after and I was really um, scared, but also excited about uh, Yanimar's invitations, as I, as I often am. But I'm always <laughs> grateful at the end of them because it was this really, I think, daunting task that we had in front of us, which was um, basically to get everything together for this book within, you know, a six month span. So at, at, at this I time, less. <laughs> yeah, like so at this time last year, actually, was when we were beginning the conversations about how we were going to turn this into an edited volume. So, I mean, the the kind of time crunch that it took, I think, was for us as, as folks working in traditional academic um, disciplines really kind of head spinning, but I think was really exciting. Both of us are really committed to doing public scholarship projects. So we have both really, I think, especially in the past two years, really been challenging ourselves to produce work that is more um, publicly accessible, that is, um, speaking to a kind of urgency, right. In a way that a a traditional scholarly monograph can't always do. Right. Um, and I thought that having a chance to kind of bring all of these folks together, um, and having it be distributed by Haymarket, right. Having it be kind of distributed by us left press was a really important kind of move for us to, I think, um, centralize these voices is important for these progressive and left struggles in 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 the us as well as um globally and throughout latin america and the caribbean so we we put to work and mm-hmm. our contributors were amazing. Um, we did have to do a little, a little coaxing, but for the most part, everyone was really awesome in terms of uh, getting their submissions. in. so, I mean, it's, I think it's a testament to people's commitment to um, really diving into this theme that we have over 30 contributors. Um, and this book came out in the span of less than a year, I think because everyone felt that this was so critical and so urgent to, to really pull together on. Yeah. And I,
2: you know, I'm really grateful to Haymarket because they've also have priced it, you know, at a very accessible price point. And so I, I think, you know, people can purchase it and Mm -hmm. feel comfortable also assigning it in classes. It's something, Mm -hmm. you know, students can afford and it's also going to be distributed in Puerto Rico uh, where Mm -hmm. where it's also, you know, an accessible price point there. So I think, you know, I've been reflecting on this as we've been doing the opening events, you know, where I hear so many people saying, oh, this is so great for the classroom. And, you know, it's true that it's so hard to find readings that are an accessible tone and, and an appropriate language for an undergrad class and for an audience that is not a specialist in puerto rico and so i am i'm hoping that you know that we can show that that there is an audience for for these kinds of of books you know and that there is interest in in hearing different voices yeah
0: yeah thank you both and I, i like the the point about accessibility um because as you all mentioned you all have um, you'll have photographers, artists, journalists, p- p- uh, people speaking about theater, media, um, poetry, technology, and all of these are different ways of of, of, of accessing, right? Accessing the histories of Puerto Rico and um, what happened before and after Maria. Um, and so I, I want to talk more about this idea of public scholarship and access, and and maybe we can loop in here your work on um, the PR syllabus. Can you all talk more about the syllabus, how that came together, um, and maybe a little bit more about what what its function is?
2: So the PR syllabus, it it, it emerged. I I see its emergence a conversation that I had with my colleague Isar Godro in Puerto Rico at the time of the university strike there, mm-hmm. and so she was. She was, you know, she was telling me, oh, you know, I've been try- I'm in the US and she's in Puerto Rico and I'm trying to figure out how I can support the strike. And she's like, you know, here we're so caught up in, you know, being on the- on the picket lines and having meetings, but we're really struggling to try to get our head around the debt and to try to get our head around, you know, the broader, you know, austerity regime in which the budget cuts to the university are, you know, embedded. And so it would be really great to just have like a list of resources. And so as, as Marisol can attest I, I always like escalate things to the next level. And so <laughs> it was supposed to be a list of resources and I'm like, "Oh, let's turn it into like a crowdsource like public syllabus." And I know, you know, Marisol Lebron, she's really great on Twitter and she had a blog and she would be like a perfect person <laughs> to, you know, you know, engage in this public uh, scholarly engaged, you know, initiative. So I reached out to Marisol and- and I'm sure she was, again, uh, excited and afraid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like a constant undercurrent in, yeah. our, in our scholarly relationship.
2: <laughs> yeah. But so, uh, you know, I reached out with the idea and um, we started. It started as a Google Doc of, mm-hmm. a, of um, links. And then I'm like, oh, we should make it a, a WordPress site, you know, just like a, an advanced Google Doc. And it's mm-hmm. it's just measured into this big site that that is that we love and that a lot of people I know use and value and we get emails all the time um, from people who appreciate it. Although at the same time, we don't sleep at night stressed out about <laughs> keeping it updated because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we undertook this before Hurricane Maria and, and since, since the hurricane, uh, you know, and everything that was already unfolding with the debt crisis, but now all that's going on with FEMA and the recovery, um, all the different interests in Puerto Rico right now, um, it's really become a a very large project. Um, We have multiple collaborators, and we've been fundraising and trying to figure out how, how to sustain it, because one of the problems with these kinds of um, social scholarship, public scholarship is that, you know, people do it in a volunteer basis um, in response to a moment. And it's really hard to sustain those projects and institutionalize them over time. So that's what we're trying to figure out, how to make it um, a sustainable project that we can keep going while at the same time doing our other work.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that makes the PR syllabus like really unique and really um challenging in a lot of ways, but also incredibly rewarding is the fact that, and this is something that we were discussing last night at the launch event, is like, what do you do when the crisis is ongoing, right? The crisis hasn't ended. So for us, we wanted to have this amazing, accessible public resource on on how to understand the debt crisis, because we really felt that that was it, there's a lot of noise out there about the debt, right? It was very difficult to cut through what was kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, pro-austerity government propaganda um, or apolo- like apologies, right? Versus kind of what was a critical perspective and a, and a perspective that took into account kind of the complex history that gave rise to this debt crisis, right? It didn't just pop out out of nowhere in 2015, right? This has been a longstanding standing A structural crisis that is very much embedded within a colonial um, uh, system right in Puerto Rico so for us we were really looking for these resources that could be attentive and that we could direct people to but that means that like as this crisis continues to unfold we have it's constantly changing on the ground both in terms of what are the kinds of things that the fiscal control board is doing? What are these new title three um, hearings? What are the new kind of demands of bondholders are making, right? Versus what are the ways in which activists or artists are now responding to this crisis, given different exigencies on um, how to deal with it. Right. And so, uh, it's been kind of a challenge for us to kind of keep up with that. So Yadimar joked about us not like sleeping at night. Right. And stuff like that, because I think there is a pressure where we, we do consider ourselves um, really trying to um, provide these resources and trying to provide folks with kind of um, reliable and accessible information on the debt, because the other reason why this was a really important project for us. And I think this speaks to kind of our political um, commitments our kind of um pride in that this is an um, all-woman-led kind of project, right, is that this is a lot of the ways that the debt gets dealt with is in these, like, super sterile, sterile, like, um, masculinist kind of economic, hard, rational logics that um, dismiss, like, the very real effects that the debt has on people's lives, right, through this obfuscation of numbers and statistics and responsibility and things like that. And so we really try to also look for sources They were outside of that. They were very attentive to kind of the lived reality of the debt and the ways in which the debt was kind of compounding people's lived vulnerabilities, right? But also the way in which these groups that are incredibly vulnerable and marginalized within Puerto Rico are also at the forefront of the most vibrant kind of resistance to this kind of um, austerity and and state violence. So that's something that we felt like was really missing. And that was really unique for us as kind of uh, a collective that was working on this, that was uh, all woman led, that was kind of um, across rank, right? So the fact that we have someone who's a full professor, and we have folks who are grad students that are working on this, and we all are working on this Equally, And we all bring something kind of unique and different to these conversations, right? So thinking about um, our other two collaborators, uh, Sarah and Isabel, Isabel brings this amazing perspective on literature and the arts that is so critical, but often so neglected when talking about the debt. And then Sarah Molinari has been working with these directly with communities that are calling for a citizens edit, that are uh, fighting for a just recovery now in Puerto Rico for about more than two years and is really attentive to those kind of social struggles on the ground, too. And so those are things that complement the work that Yari, Yadimar and I are doing as well. Right. But that we we couldn't do this project in a full way without them, right? And so I mm-hmm. think that has been something that's been really critical in our, in our kind of formation of this collective that's trying to run this project is really how to think kind of, um, you know, horizontally and how to think in this kind of um, uh, ways that are about kind of seeing all of the strengths that we're all bringing to this project as a way to get at the kind of deep complexities of the debt crisis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing um, their name and their work to this interview. It's really important. Um, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about, because you all have mentioned some some sort of um, references to the debt or the canceling of the debt or um, certain things that have happened um, before Maria, right? And I think it's really important to, to, to say and something that you all recognize in your, you all like centralized in your introduction is that Maria did not happen in a vacuum, right? The disastrous response by the Puerto Rican government and the United States government um, were were in the making, right? Um, so what happened after Maria, such as state failure, social abandonment, capitalization, collective trauma, were not simply because of Maria, right? But as you all write in the introduction, um, Maria revealed the systemic failures of Puerto Rico. And so I was wondering if you all could recount some of the the history that could help contextualize the listeners to these failures.
1: So I think one of the things that that we try to really centralize in the in the in like our editor's introduction but that i think all the pieces really point to right from from the various contributors and so it's it's interesting to think about this as a theme that actually runs and cuts across like genre or like approach Mm. right so you can find it in the poems you can find it in the play you find it in the photo essays right as much as in the journalistic or or scholarly pieces is really this idea of um what in the introduction we call this the coloniality of disaster, right? So the fact that what sets the, the, the real kind of disaster that is occurring in Puerto Rico is one of colonialism, right? And colonial extraction and exploitation, right? And all of the ways in which that cuts across with racism and, um, uh, capitalism, all of these other kind of uh, social structures, right? And so what we see is that, you know, Maria ends up becoming this event that o- opens up a lot of perspectives to reflect, right, on how this has been this longstanding standing. Um, disaster that's been building for uh, for for you know not just decades but for centuries right and so that's something we really try to pull pull out in the editor's introduction and which comes across in a lot of the pieces right is that this is not something that happened um two years ago right but this is uh it's hard to tell if this is even like what the event we're talking about is right and so that's why we we kind of draw on this concepts of of aftershocks right which Uh, Yadimar can kind of explain a little bit better than than I can, right? But the concept of of aftershocks is really just this question of like, what is the actual disaster, right? If we're talking about these compound effects, right? it becomes very difficult to distinguish whether we're talking about something that be, is an after effect, something that is a main shock, something that is a foreshock, what's setting the grounds, right? And so we have this really complicated and nonlinear history, right? That we try to trace in the book, right? Because it isn't just a straight line, right? There's a lot of zigzagging that has to do with the various machinations of how colonial rule and governance has functioned in Puerto Rico and the various ways in which people have resisted it, right? They have given birth to this current moment of crisis, right? Of which Maria is one effect, but we can also argue that Maria has actually affected the debt crisis, right? Which the debt crisis is an effect of Um, the Commonwealth relationship, right, which gets established in 1952 in Puerto Rico, right, so it's very difficult to kind of trace this very straightforward genealogy, but the argument that we try to make that even though there isn't a clear-cut kind of genealogy or line, right, we can trace a significant amount of what led to the present crisis in this day um, with Maria to these kind of systematic failures that have been fostered, By an emphasis on on colonialism and capital extraction. So I don't know if you want to kind of get into a little bit more about why um, aftershocks and stuff like that. Yeah, I think uh, so. I, you know, I
2: I, I borrowed this term that's more related to earthquakes than hurricanes. And part of that might be because I was, you know, trained by Haitianists, think a lot about Haiti and was really impacted by the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 and and that for me, that was a, one of the entry points for thinking about anthropology of disaster, et cetera. Mm. And so and, and the other nod in that title is also to Naomi's shock doctrine. And so but but, you know, p- and part of the dialogue that I have with Naomi Klein about this is um, that I don't know that the shock doctrine is the appropriate way to think about the what's happening in Puerto Rico, because there's not necessarily a shock, but a trauma, you know, and, and mm. an a- you know, aftershock. And so part of what we want to suggest is that it's hard to say what is the main shock and what are the aftershocks what are the the recursive disasters that are happening in Puerto Rico is is Maria the main shock and then you know all the problems with the recovery are the aftershocks that are being experienced the blackout the the death toll all of those can be thought of as aftershocks of Maria but at the same time Maria itself might be thought of as an aftershock uh, related to the debt crisis because you know the debt crisis set the stage for for Maria to be as devastating as it was, as did uh, climate change, mm-hmm. as did colonialism, as did all these other factors that are put into place. And part of what I find really interesting and, and evocative to think about in relationship to this idea, this concept of the aftershocks is that uh, scientists don't know exactly which is the main shock until you know a long period of time has passed. And so you might mm-hmm. feel something that you think is the main shock and then it at, later turns out to be a foreshock. Or, or or it turns out to be the main shock, and then there's these other uh, you know events, and I think that speaks to how people in Puerto Rico are feeling right now, where there are these repetitive hits to the collective body. And it's unclear where exactly it originates. And, and and sadly, it's also unclear when exactly it's going to end. You know, so I think that that's the other the other issue is that there's these feelings that there might still be more aftershocks. And I remember in in Haiti, after the earthquake, a lot of people kept sleeping outside, they were afraid to go back into their homes, because they were afraid of of new jolts. And, you know, I think similarly in in Puerto Rico, a lot of people are afraid of what's going to happen. You know, what what's when is the recovery going to really take place? Yesterday in the newspaper, you know, they showed that two years after Maria, there's been no significant public works done to repair the roads, to repair the fallen bridges. You know, so there is this state of suspension still in Puerto Rico where people are still waiting to to see, you know, what is gonna be the full extent and outcome of all of this. Mm
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that we really tried to point to, and we do this with the story that we open up the introduction with, right, is really the idea that these jolts are also cumulative, right? So it becomes that, okay, maybe there are these really minor s- supposed aftershocks, right? But when you take all, you're d- you're dealing with shock after shock after shock, right, impact after impact after impact that has a cumulative effect that can sometimes make it worse than the actual initial shock, right? And so that's one of the things that, we that you know, we start off with this story of this um, woman who um, starts to s- experience significant mental health crisis um, after the hurricane, right? And it's not necessarily even the hurricane that is what is causing her mental health crisis, right? The way that she narrates it and what we found really intriguing about her story is she narrates it uh, as this idea that like, there's no jobs, I can't go back home. um, I'm dealing with this new kind of environment. And like, it becomes that the, the... what happens is that the hurricane starts to unleash this situation that then creates all of, as you noted, this repetitive or cumulative shocks, right? That actually are what creates this now bigger crisis, right? This worse crisis. So it's not just that she lost her house or it's not just that she lost her job, right? But it's the cumulative things that come after that, right? That can sometimes create this, this situation that ends up becoming worse than the initial trauma. Right. And so for us, that was something that was really, critical to um, point to also because so much of the response following Hurricane Maria was this need to get over it kind of quickly, right? And and we talk about this idea of resilience. We have other kind of authors who talk about and challenge this idea of uh, Puerto Rico se levanta and Puerto Rico rises and all of this kind of these slogans that emerge in the aftermath of the hurricane, which were not take into account, right, the fact that there are these successive shocks, right? So to hear two years later that literally the front page of Anuelia yesterday said zero dollars spent on public infrastructural works, right? And to just tell people that, oh, they're making a big deal out of it or that was two years ago, you should get over it. Doesn't take into account those long lasting and cumulative effects, right? And so that's something that in the book we really tried to find contributors who were very attentive to that. And in our author, um, our editor's introduction, we tried to write something that they really tried to get at that, right? And so the, the concept of aftershocks allowed us to, to try and get at that in some
0: ways. Thank you. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed about the book is. That you and the contributors are are really um, in, um, careful about which words you're using and which and 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 sort of explore these words and all of their meanings, right? And so some of the words that I'm thinking about that you all just mentioned is something like, what does it mean for uh, Puerto Rico to recover, right? What does it mean for people to be resilient? What does it mean for people to be able to take jolt after jolt after jolt, right? Um, so I was wondering if you all can talk a little bit about some of those terms and the, and how you all complicate them, um, not only in, in, in the introduction, um, editor's introduction, but Yarimad in your conversation with Naomi Klein um, or Marisol in your interview um, later on in the book.
2: Yeah, so, I, you know, I think we wanted to think critically about first this notion of crisis as a kind of, um, and, and to question the temporality of, of this event, when it began, when it ended. And so. You no, know, looking for you know a kind of conceptual vocabulary that could allow us to to unpack the the tempor- the temporality of this event. Um, also, thinking critically about this idea of shock of, of of a kind of sudden blow. How can we think about the kind of long durée of what's happening in Puerto Rico? And then uh, really complicating this idea of recovery. So first, uh, on, you know, on the one hand, saying you know that that they're 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 really is no recovery you know there were there were things that were lost and and loved ones that were lost to Maria that are never coming back and then at, at the same time we don't necessarily want to recover to where we were before Maria um, we don't want to 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 bounce back and 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 also we we want to think critically about this idea of being resilient and being able to sustain shock after shock and to you know bounce back to a situation that is not acceptable to begin with mm-hmm. um, and so part of what we did discussed um, yesterday at the book launch also was how the government um, at times uses and promotes this narrative of resilience. And um, one of our contributors, Sofia uh, Gallizamuriente, she was not able to be there last night, but she was watching on the live stream and she was texting me afterwards, reminding me about how um, also the governor used this pitch to, to try to sell Puerto Rico as a headquarters for Amazon. Also, you know, saying, oh, we have, you know, this resilient population and, and also, uh, Puerto Rico, you know, is sold as as the best of both worlds, where you can pay, you know, you can stamp your goods made in the USA, and like, you know, Amazon could have brought its headquarters there and say that it was in a U.S. territory, but still pay their workforce much less. Um, still, you know, they've been passing even before Maria labor reform to reduce wages, to curtail labor rights, and so you know, to think critically about what what recovery means, um, for the government and for certain economic interests. That would like Puerto Rico to recover and become an even better colony, you know, and so we don't mm-hmm. that's not necessarily what we want to see for Puerto Rico moving forward,
1: yeah, and one of the things I think we try to be really attentive to is like also challenging this this discourse of resiliency, right, and um, you know, just this idea that like what what exactly are Puerto Ricans supposed to be resilient to, right? There's not an effort by the by the government as you know are the peace by. By Arturo Masal um, demonstrates right on the kind of solar and the lack of green and and renewable energies right in Puerto Rico right. There's no government effort to actually make the infrastructure resilient to make the um, archipelago uh, less vulnerable to the effects of climate change, which are going to increase in the Caribbean over the next um, uh, years and decades. Right um, to ca- to to make catastrophic events like Maria more and more common. Right, which is what we've seen with. Um, Dorian, uh, most recently, right. So the resiliency is not about the things that are actually going to make people feel safer, right and feel like more resilient in in their environment environment, right? It becomes this kind of neoliberal individual responsibility kind of notion of being able to withstand. These um, forms of state violence. Right. And being able to kind of grin and bear it with these forms of extraction and exploitation that actually create the very conditions that make the make Puerto Rico less resilient when it comes to issues of climate change. Right. And so these become really critical you know, kind of touchstones for us, um, in, in the editor's introduction, but as well as in the pieces, um, and in particular in, in, in Yarimar and, uh, Naomi Klein's kind of conversation right around, um, this desire for this kind of, um, population that will be willing to take whatever, mm-hmm. um, people will throw at it, right? Because that's what it takes to actually get Puerto Rico to, you know, quote unquote, recover from the economic debt crisis, right? And that's what we're seeing with the implementation of PROMESA, this uh, implementation of the COFINA um, agreement, which is an agreement that, um which Ed Morales writes about in his piece, as well as uh, Eva Prados and hers, right? Which is basically rewarding um, vulture capitalists for buying Puerto Rican debt uh, for pennies on the dollar and then asking Puerto Ricans to pay over 11% in sales tax, right? Um, which is sales tax that's, that's now not going to go to schools, not going to go to basic infrastructure, not going to go to hospitals, right? And so you're ha- you're demanding a, a a a kind of population that... Is going to be able to go without basic um, infrastructure and necessities, right? And that's what resilience becomes, right? Um, and so we really try to challenge that, right? We and kind of think about how do we go from you know resilience to questions of self determination and sovereignty, right? Where's the kind of shift there? Um, and so that's especially in in kind of terms of trauma, right? We try to kind of really unpack those those questions.
0: Yeah, and on 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 that um the topic of resilience. I want to read a quote um from page 32 and this is um a quote from Yadimad in conversation with Naomi Klein where Yadimad you say resilience suggests that um resilience suggests that business can carry on as usual. That Puerto Rico can be open for business even as thousands remain roofless, homeless, displaced, and destitute. In this way, resilience becomes jargon for simply adapting to Rather than confronting or transforming unacceptable conditions, right? And so, um, a discourse of resiliency sort of lets the state off the hook, um, and 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 it makes room for these these vulture capitalists, as you all say. And, and I think the relationship between self-resiliency and self-determination um, is incredibly important. And I'm wondering if you all can talk more about the the this idea. Um, or the conflict between self, uh, sorry, self-reliance and self-determination. What does it mean to be self-reliant, even under um, state abandonment? And then, what does it mean to be self uh, to be self determinant Right. Or what does it mean to 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 be able to govern oneself?
2: No. yeah thank you John thank you for pulling that quote out I have to say it moves me I don't know <laughs> like so much of this is still so uh you know fresh and and, and you know we're in the anniversary week of hurricane Maria and so okay. I don't know just hearing the echo of those words and the anger that I felt a year ago um, um as you know people who were still, living under you know tarps and everything we're being called upon to carry on as usual and and we and I should say you know we're seeing this again in the Bahamas where already the ministry yeah. of tourism has called for tourists to come back and said we need tourists and they have people staying in luxury hotels and then in order to feel better about it they will like spend an afternoon making sandwiches with chef Jose Andres um, yeah. to while they're on their vacation, right? And so I think that you know, a lot uh, there's lots of ways in which you know there's a particularity to Puerto Rico because of its relationship to the U.S. But um, it, it, I think it's important to think beyond that and to also connect it to the broader uh, you know challenges of, of climate change and sovereignty in the Caribbean region as a whole. And so and I, I, I wrote a column this week for Nuevo Día, which is thinking about that and about how Puerto Rico's disaster, we see it play out as, as, as in the kind of repeating islands of the Caribbean. Um, but in, in terms of, of, of resilience and self-determination, I, I actually have new thoughts about that after this summer. I mean, already before that. You know, I was writing about the tension between the government neoliberal calls for resilience and what you could see, you know, as as a kind of challenge to Puerto Rico's colonial situation through grassroots calls for autogestión or self-reliance. Which I did, I did see as something somewhat different from you know what the government was calling for. So you know, before Media already with the debt crisis, there was a lot of talk about Puerto Ricans having to to self-rely, to do things for themselves, and and there are ways in which that lets the state off the hook, and there are ways in which it replicates a neoliberal ideology that a state is only there to really serve the markets and not really serve its populations. But we saw how this summer that kind of self-reliance and and, and Puerto Ricans, you know, realization that they don't need the state, that the state is not really providing for them or looking yeah. out for them, led to them not being afraid of getting rid of their governor. And so there are ways I think that that these calls for self-reliance and for resilience have actually, um, you know, uh, been, how, uh, how was the word, as a kind of... Um, uh, not worked out for the state mm-hmm. but you know uh you know been not been what they've what they've expected and so i think that uh you know th- th- it's tricky how you know when when abandoned and left to their own devices you know then Puerto Ricans realize well, maybe maybe we can figure out other ways. Figure out other ways of doing this, and and they already you know uh, did a whole movement against the the local governor. Um, and who knows what's going to happen if FEMA and and the federal government also keeps delaying you know the the work that it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, right now you drive through Puerto Rico and you see all these, uh, you know, street lights that aren't working and traffic lights that aren't working. And everyone says, oh, it's because, you know, they're waiting for FEMA. That's up to FEMA. So as if that explains why two years out, it's still not done. Right. Mm-hmm. So so I think that the, you know, the complicated politics of self-reliance and 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 that are neither they're neither good nor bad, you know, it's not entirely neoliberal, but it's also not entirely anti-colonial. And so we have to be careful about romanticizing, romanticizing auto gestión as well, you know, and remaining critical of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that I've been thinking about a lot over the past two years and um have been talking to a lot of kind of collaborators and just you know, colleagues and friends, and uh, folks who are kind of activists as well. And just trying to think about, you know, that there's this way in which hastion comes from this really rich tradition, right? If we think about kind of autonomous, anarchist kind of politics, right, which is about like exactly decentering the state, right, which has, you know. Um, This super super rich kind of tradition in in puerto rico right um although it's not often seen as because of the kind of whitewashing of of the anarchist tradition is not seen as a central node right and kind of anarchist thinking and action but one of the things for us to kind of um consider is like it comes out of these really rich traditions like um you know abolitionist politics anarchist politics kind of you know uh black feminist kind of politics of kind of embodiment and self-determination right they are like inherently anti-colonial inherently anti-capitalist right but there's a way in which there is a capability for the state to really grasp onto that right and and also try to um make it serve its ends right which is not the the intention of the activists themselves right or the people who are lending support and solidarity right but there's a way in which the state is incredibly savvy at how to try and turn this into something to to benefit it and that's something that i've seen in the course of my own research on policing right where the you know there's this community um uh, Loisa in in Puerto Rico. That's a predominantly uh, Afro Puerto Rican community, low income community. And whenever the police go in, they they act super racist. They're very violent. And so the the community was just like, we have this problem with gang violence, and we're gonna um, deal with this on our own. And they started doing direct mediation and working with like gang involved youth, right and in a lot of ways, that's exactly what the state wants to do is like, let these communities deal with the problems on their own. Right. And so that's what we started to see also as the debt crisis worsened, right. After Maria hit, right. The state is in a lot of ways, totally content and happy, not only to let these communities uh, do this stuff on their own, but then to, in a really cynical way, be like, look at how strong our communities are. Look at, so for instance, in the case of the community in Loisa, which was, um, the work of a a feminist organization, Taier Salud, um, they were totally happy to say, we should do this Taier Salud program all over the, the, the archipelago, and we should, um, use this as a model, right? And so there's a way in which the state, Pointing to that as a model is different from what the intention of that community is because the state wants it to become a model so that they can start to retreat more and more and more from the expectations that citizens have for public safety. Right. And so we started to see that a similar kind of move after Maria, I think, right. Where the state was making these claims of like, look at our resilient population. Look how, um, you know, in, in San Sebastian, which is where my family's from uh, the power authority wasn't doing anything. And now all these retired line workers were able to restore power. Right. That's amazing. That's the ingenuity of our people. Right. And there's a way in which it becomes a cynical move. That's actually about, um, absolving the state and also attracting capital. So we just have to be very like mindful of the ways in which even though these moves in and of themselves are not neoliberal, they can feed into this work that the state is doing to achieve these kind of um, neoliberal ends.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, so we're sort of um coming to the end of the of the conversation but i wanted to ask what are your hopes for the anthology and and the broader pr syllabus moving forward um what are some things what you all talk so much about wanting um or how you all are are public scholars and and working with with people outside of academia um and the accessibility of, of of the anthology what are some of your hopes for the anthology?
2: Well, the next step is to uh, have it come out in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've already contracted with Editorial Callejón in Puerto Rico, um, because, you know, even though we've already um, made sure that it's going to be available in English, and to be sold there, we also want to make sure that it's accessible in Spanish. So that's, you know, Mm -hmm. we're working on that. And then in terms of Puerto Rico syllabus, we have uh, several plans to expand it. We want to make it fully bilingual. That's a goal that we've been working towards for a while we've been applying for funds from the uh, national endowment for the humanities and other sources to incorporate more undergraduates you know in it and and to find we're still figuring out and, you know, open to suggestions and, and more, you know, more participation from other folks in the Puerto Rico syllabus of how to make it more than just a website, but actually a community of learning, um, you know, transnational by, you know, multilingual, uh, and, and, and a kind of space where people can find, you know, alternative stories that you, you don't find in the, in the mainstream media or even in mainstream ac- academic organizations and conferences uh, at times.
1: Yeah, I think our like big goal right now is just trying to figure out how to make this sustainable, right? And so that's been the challenge with the syllabus, right? And, you know, a lot of these projects are projects of love, right? So like this book came out in the past year and, you know, everyone kind of dropped stuff to keep up with a timeline to be able to make it possible for this book to come out so quickly, right? And 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 to come out with, you know, I, I think, right, a high, a high quality, you know, book. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that it, it, we have a similar kind of challenge with the with the PR syllabus as well, which is um, this is something that, you know, we have full time jobs. Right. Um, our other two collective members are uh, writing their dissertations. Right. Or doing research. Right. And so this is something that folks are are are, are doing, um Because they feel really passionate and they think it's really important, but that creates this kind of workflow problem, right? That we've been trying to kind of figure out how to make this a a sustainable project, right? Particularly because we do see this as a little bit different from traditional kind of digital syllabi, right? Which is like a kind of one and done deal, right? We see this as more of an ongoing kind of, um, project that is about creating a kind of living archive of the debt, right? Um, the debt crisis and the responses to it. So that's something that we've been trying to figure out, um, as we're like applying for grants, as we're trying to, um, work with kind of, um, updating our website and stuff like that, how to, um, make this a more sustainable, um, uh, project, right? That doesn't make us burn out or doesn't make us kind of um feel like racked with guilt, which is kind of where we're at right now for not updating it for a while, right? And stuff like that. So um so that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. And so we're hoping actually to be in conversation with also other kind of digital um kind of scholarship um, folks about having these conversations about how to make these projects much more sustainable, right? Because it is often not the primary thing. It is also unfortunately the thing that is, among the most devalued in academia, despite this kind of constant touting of the digital humanities, right? Like everyone wants like you to have in your CV or in your cover letter, right? For those of you who are listening to this on the job market, right? Uh, If you can point to having a DH component to your dissertation, right? Oh, that's very cool. But it literally counts for nothing often Mm -hmm. when you're going up for tenure or promotion. And so trying to have these conversations about like, how do we quantify the work that we're doing? How do we show the significance of the work that we're doing? So for me, you know, the Puerto Rico syllabus, and I'm sure Yadimar feels similarly, is just as important as the books we've published, right? I think it does an incredible uh, service and it is about creating knowledge communities in the same way that our kind of more traditional scholarship is as well, right? And so how do we communicate that, right? And And help to kind of, um make that value real and legible within within academia and I think that's a big challenge that we're trying to figure out
0: mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much um and whether or not it's legible in academia myself and I'm sure many of the listeners and many of the non-listeners incredibly appreciate the work that you all do and that you all have done um and I want to continue to just stress the importance of this anthology, right, as we find ourselves at the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria and in the midst of more natural disasters um, in the Caribbean and the greater Atlantic Ocean. And something that I wanted to, to just bring to the conversation, while we won't have lot um, much time to, to, to talk about it, is that the lived experiences of people in these disasters are vary, right? Um, um, as you all mentioned in the NYU panel and in some spaces of the book and um, the anthology, that specifically you know black afro puerto ricans um folks who identify as black or queer uh, queer um, trans and people of minoritized experiences experience disaster much differently um and and, and, and experiences vary across um across across the island and archipelago so i wanted to bring that to the conversation um in order to just for us to wrap up one last thing i have um to ask you all is what are you all working on now? And that might seem daunting um, after sort of talking about everything you've worked on. Um, but the listeners do like to so sort of like to hear what are future projects um, that, that, that authors authors are working on
2: well i'm I'm working on my uh you know my own book about Puerto Rico that I, I had started writing about the statehood movement in Puerto Rico. then it also became about the debt crisis and the death of the Ella and and then about Hurricane Maria and also mm-hmm. about Ricky Renuncia. So uh, somehow, you know, a book that somehow encapsulates you know everything that's been happening in Puerto Rico for the last several years. And in addition to that, I also have another collection coming out next year called Trio Remixed uh, with a, basically a Michelle Rolfe Trio Reader that is also the product of a conference that we did at the University of Chicago for the 25th anniversary of Silencing the Past, Trio's most uh, notable book. So wow. uh, your your listeners should definitely look out for that although that is on an academic press so it's on an academic timeline. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I am working on, let me see, what am I working on? So I'm at Harvard this year at the, at the Warren Center, and so I'm on leave, um, you know, for my kind of uh, teaching responsibilities and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm actually trying to get a jump start on my next project, uh, which is looking at interna- um, Puerto Rican involvement, international uh, solidarity and freedom movement. So, for instance, how did Puerto Ricans? Uh, show support for the anti-apartheid struggle or pro-Palestine, anti-occupation, um, anti-war movement Southeast Asia. So looking at how Puerto Ricans um, throughout the 20th century aligned themselves with these international freedom movements, not only to show solidarity with these movements, but to also use those movements um, as an opportunity or uh to make legible Puerto Rico's ongoing colonial condition, right? So this becomes the ongoing struggle for Puerto Ricans is like in a decolonial world, how do you make it clear that Puerto Rico is still a colony, right? And so one of the arguments I'm making with this next project is actually that these international solidarity movements allow them to kind of make uh, uh, comparisons, right, that make Puerto Rico more legible on the international kind of stage, uh, but I'm also working on I don't know making waffles and exercising <laughs> and like yeah plants because I, d- my book just came out and then this book just came out so I oh, feel man. like I just have twins so I'm, <laughs> like, I'm kind of good for a minute but I am you know I do want to take advantage of this kind of opportunity and to to kind of jumpstart this this mm-hmm. project which I'm really excited about.
0: Thank you. Those all sound incredibly exciting. And Yarimad, you're like the master of turning conferences into like books. Like, <laughs>
2: I, think, I don't like things to disappear. I like them that's, to, you know, to become something. Yes,
0: um, that's beautiful. Um, well, thank you all so much for for talking to me um, and and talking about the anthology and your work on the PR syllabus and the work that you are um, that you all are doing this next year. And so I, um, I, I incredibly enjoyed it. Thank you so much.